For those of us who have loved ones in heaven, that song has a lot of emotion. I remember the first time I heard it, I cried. Still tear up once in a while. My name is David Blackburn. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Fellowship. Welcome. Wasn't it last Sunday great, the game plan? Wasn't that great? All the kids and the adult sponsors, and if you haven't had a chance to tell Ann Davis thanks for directing that, man, that was just wonderful. I also want to remind you that uh, those 60 backpacks all found a sponsor. Thank you so much for helping out with that. Those kids got them this week at a back-to-school party in Washington Park, Illinois, so thank you so much. There are some great destinations in this life. Paris, France, Venice, Italy, Rio de Janeiro, New York, Chicago. Then uh, the Rocky Mountains, Yellowstone National Park, Niagara Falls, uh, the Great Wall of China. When I go down to this uh, little Chinese restaurant and eat uh, there by uh, Rural King or wherever it is, they got the Great Wall of China there, so I don't even have to go. It's right there, man. Save me a lot of money. The Alps. All fabulous, excuse me, I'm fighting a cold, destinations that people dream about visiting while they're still alive on this earth. Two weeks ago, we started this little mini-series, and we looked at one of the destinations available in the afterlife, in afterlife and eternity, same thing. Now, it's one that your travel agent won't recommend. And if your travel agent recommends that one, you need to find a new travel agent. Every person alive today will ultimately arrive at one of two destinations when they die. It's everybody. This morning, I want to talk about the other destination available to us, the better place, heaven. As human beings, we have a terminal disease called mortality. And the current death rate for this condition is 100%. Unless Christ returns soon, we're all going to die. We don't like to talk about death, yet worldwide, two people die every second. And nearly 6,000 every hour. So if the Bible is right about what happens after death, it means that every day more than 150,000 people go either to hell or heaven. The idea of heaven is fascinating. It's actually one of the few universal human fascinations. Pretty much everybody around the world has thought about the concept of heaven at least one time in their life. All major religions have beliefs about the afterlife, from Hinduism to Islam to Christianity. You see, the whole human race has a faint but powerful awareness that there must be a better, different world that we were designed for. And why wouldn't that be the case when we read a scripture like this? 
He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. And men being the generic for all of humankind. Solomon, known as the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, tells us that all people are born with an inner sense that there is something greater and grander. A sense that we were made for more than just life on this earth. We know instinctively that the grave is not our final destiny. Now we've looked at what the afterlife will be like for those who don't have Jesus and they die as unbelievers. Not a pretty picture. This morning we want to focus our attention on the afterlife for believers. For those people who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life. There have been a number of books written by or about people, excuse me, who claim to have personally visited heaven. Some of these authors profess to be Christians while others do not. And the descriptions of their experiences vary regarding such things as entering into a dazzling white light at the end of a dark tunnel, you know, being greeted by deceased loved ones or, or being in the presence of God, however that plays out. And although these books supply much information, they, the content they provide raises questions. And that would seem to be the case with a book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list now for nearly 10 months. And I'm sure you know the book I'm talking about. Heaven is for Real. It's a nonfiction account that documents the experience of a little three-year-old boy by the name of Colton Burpo. They live in Nebraska, he and his family. His dad's a pastor, matter of fact. Colton believes he visited heaven during an emergency appendectomy operation. Now, although most of Colton's observations on heaven are not outside the realm of possibility of what could take place, they are, nevertheless, extra-biblical insight and information. The Bible is basically silent on the specific things that little Colton revealed in the book. And this raises the question as to why God would leave out something of seeming value for us in the Bible. The Word of God, which Peter said was given through God's prophets as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. Why would, be, why would God be silent through those he chose to write the scriptures and reveal things much later through a little boy as well as others who've made similar claims about heaven? I want to read something from a man by the name of Tim Chalice about the book and his observation. He says, if you struggle believing what the Bible says, but learn to find security in the testimony of a toddler, well, I feel sorry for you. And I do not mean this in a condescending way. If God's word is not sufficient for you, if the testimony of his spirit given to believers is not enough for you, you will not find any true hope 
in the unproven tales of a child. This hope may last for a moment, but it will not sustain you. It will not bless you in those times when hope is waning and times are hard. I would advise all of us, myself at the top of the list, to be careful to build any theological constructs on anything other than the Bible and what it reveals to us. Anytime it's extra-biblical revelation, that should put up a warning and an attendant to you to be very careful. Go ahead, read the books if you want. I'm not saying don't read the books. But don't assume they have the same authority and revelation as God's Word when it comes to learning about heaven. Polls show that nearly three out of four people believe hell exists, although only one out of a hundred think they'll end up there. So I'm thinking, you know, what does that mean that an overwhelming majority of people believe they'll end up in heaven? So what kind of response do you think we would get if we'd go out on the streets of St. Louis or, or Memphis, any major city in America, and ask this question? Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? What kind of response? I believe most people would say something like this. uh, I hope so. I think so. You know, I believe I've got a really good chance. Very few people would look you in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to heaven. I believe you probably could ask that same question in churches all over Madison County this morning and get similar answers. You know, I I hope so. I think so. Uh, I believe I've got a good chance. That's a terrible way to live your life, my friends. God wants every true believer to have an assurance about this issue of eternal life. John writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Assurance of eternal life is the first of five Christian certainties that John puts forth in his book, First John. God had him write this to give believers confidence that they possessed eternal life and a home in heaven. No more of this, I hope so, I think so. You don't have to think that way when it comes to heaven and eternal life. God says you can know. You can have a certainty. You can know for sure. And that brings great comfort and peace to those who are true believers. So this morning I want us to consider some of the questions that are asked about heaven. And again, we must remember that the only things we can know for certain about heaven are the things revealed in the Bible. Everything else is just speculation And hearsay, whatever its source, hear me now, whatever its source. 
So our first question is this. Where is heaven? If I told you that you didn't have to be afraid of giving a wrong answer, then I ask you to point to heaven, where would you point? Now we're going to try it. So there's no, you know, I'm not, it's not wrong or right. We're not taking score or filming this right now. So let's try. I'm going to count to three. And when we count to three, get to three, I want you to point to heaven. Don't point in your, fr- your friend's ear or poke him in the eye, okay? Everybody's got to participate. One, remember the direction of heaven. Two, three. Some of you are so weak, you wouldn't even try it. Look at you. Just, you're looking around. What are they doing? Yeah, heaven is up. And you say, we pay him to tell us that? <laughs> wow, what a deep thinker this guy is. He's really studied hard on this one, hasn't he? Yeah, heaven is up. The fact that a child points up when we say, where is heaven, may seem simplistic, but it's also deeply significant. The word heaven has always had the connotation of up. In the Psalms, it says, Lord, I look up to you, up to heaven, where you rule. Just one of many references to the fact that the Bible always refers to heaven as up. It's spoken in the Bible figuratively in terms of strata. There are heavens where the birds fly and the rain falls, and this is known as the first heaven. There are heavens where the moon and and the stars move in their orbit, and this is known as the second heaven. And then the third heaven, or the highest heaven, is said to be where God dwells in a special way. The third heaven is not up in the sense that it's out there somewhere beyond our solar system. The Bible does not actually tell us an exact location of heaven. But it indicates that it's a place above anything we now know. Remember years ago when the Russian cosmonauts You know, they they looked out their window and they said, we don't see God anywhere. Now, we do know that heaven's a real place. Look at the words of Jesus. Listen to them. As the night he was betrayed, prior to his crucifixion, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Next next screen. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Every once in a while, I've got to test those guys with split screens. They do a great job, don't they? Now, twice here in John 14, this passage, Jesus calls heaven a place. He means that heaven, his father's house, is as real a place as the city of Alton, as the city of Godfrey, as St. Louis. It's as real a place. Heaven is home. What a powerful word that is, home. And when I say that word, you all can conjure up in your mind what home was like for you as a child. And although you may have grown up in a home that was far from what it should have been, 
every one of us has in our mind's eye a picture of what we envision as the perfect home. If you're like me, it's probably a picture of of deep personal fulfillment with other family members. It's a sense of security and, and belonging and meaningful relationships and lasting joy. It's something like the band sung about in that song, Finally Home. Why would that song make me cry? Why would it elicit emotions in me the way it does? Because I'm thinking about my family members who are already home with the Lord Jesus. There are no Bible verses that give us a a GPS, MapQuest-style location of heaven. And the short answer to our question, where is heaven? Well, heaven is where God is. Heaven is God's dwelling place. His home. Life can be hard. You all know that. It can bring much sorrow and pain. But be encouraged because we're not yet finally home. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the throne of God is now among his people. He will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. God will be with us. Our second question is, who will be in heaven? Well, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands of angels gathered together with joy. You have come to the meeting of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all people, and to the spirits of good people who have been made perfect. This passage tells us that in heaven there will be angels. God will be there. Old Testament believers will be there, the spirits of good people who have been made perfect. And those who become Christians since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's be clear about a few things here. Notice that people and angels are different in heaven. You don't become an angel when you die. People and angels have always been different creations of God. And they always will be even throughout eternity. I came across a few thoughts about angels from children, and I wanted to just throw them in here, even though this isn't a message on angels. Mitchell, age seven, said this. Angels work for God and watch over kids when God has something else to do. Antonio, age nine, said, all angels are girls because they've got to wear dresses, and boys don't go for that. Daniel, age nine, said, angels talk all the way while they're flying you up to heaven. The basic basic message is where you went wrong before you got dead. (laughs) You better tell us before we die, yeah, where we're going wrong. And finally, last, Vicky. This is for you, Vicky. Vicky, age eight. Some of the angels are in charge of helping heal sick animals and pets. And if they don't make the animals get any better... They help the kid get over it. 
Not a message about angels. So the second thing we notice from this passage is the fact that believers from both the Old Testament and New Testament times will be in heaven. All of us will be in heaven because of one thing. Not because you came to church faithfully. Not because you you gave your tithes to the church. Not because you were a good person in this life. We learned that last week, and we'll play on that a little bit more. But we get to heaven for one reason. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Those in Old Testament times, see, they had faith in a Messiah who they knew would come one day. And all of us who've lived after Jesus have faith in that same Messiah, the Son of God, who gave his life on the cross. Some people are concerned about the eternal state of babies or the mentally handicapped people who who die. And although it's possible that God applies Christ's payment for sin to those who can't believe for themselves, such as preborn babies and, and babies who die in infancy and the mentally handicapped, the Bible doesn't specifically say that he does this. Now, it would be consistent with his love and mercy for God to apply Christ's work on the cross to all those who can't believe on their own because of their age or mental incapacity. And it is the position of most Bible scholars that God in his mercy does apply Christ's payment for sin to those we've mentioned and they get to heaven when they die. So if you have that in your life, Rest assured that whatever God does with this issue will be right and good. For he's loving, he's holy, he's merciful, just, and he's full of grace. Our third question is, will we know each other in heaven? Probably one of the the most asked questions when you throw it out about heaven. And I think a good answer comes from a book that I came across. It's a thousand and one Bible questions answered. And I'm going to read this to you from this book because I couldn't say it any better than this. We may be sure that we shall not know less in heaven than we know here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, in referring to heaven, says... Then shall I know fully, even as I am fully known. How does God know us now? Scripture says he knows us completely, intimately, thoroughly, inside and out, with nothing hidden but everything seen as it really is. When we get to heaven, we'll know each other as God knows us, because all the imperfections of this life will be removed. In this life, sin causes us to cover ourselves, Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. But when sin is finally lifted from us, then we can be ourselves with no shame, no pain, no embarrassment, and no covering up. We will know everyone in heaven just as God knows everyone now. Individual personality survives into eternity. We'll be the same person that we are now, only with all the imperfections and limitations of sin finally removed. 
The essence of who we are will remain throughout eternity, yet vastly improved by God's grace. God will give us an ability in heaven to know everyone who is there. There are no mailing lists or phone books. We will know just like the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah, even though they had been dead for hundreds of years. There weren't name tags or angelic introductions. There was something about Moses and Elijah that made it possible for Peter, James, and John to recognize them, even though they had never seen them before. You know, when we consider the idea of knowing each other in heaven, there's always the related question, how old will we be in heaven? Some believe we'll all look like we're between 30 and 33 years of age because that was approximately the age of Jesus when he died, rose again, and went back to heaven. Now, there's no biblical support for the 33-year theory. You see, the truth is there won't be any birthdays in heaven, won't be any calendars in heaven, because there won't be any age in heaven such as we experience in this life. Growing old now is a function of the decaying effects of sin on our physical bodies. I believe the Bible assures us that we will know each other in heaven. But I don't believe there is a clear answer to what age we will be. The fourth question that people ask is, what will heaven be like? In December of 1998, uh, Entertainment Weekly magazine ran an article entitled, Whose Afterlife Is It Anyway? It was an article about movies being made about heaven. And they said this, Secular visions of heaven and hell are becoming as commonplace at the multiplex as three-hour running times. Hollywood's answers add up to a touchy, feely, shrewdly all-inclusive, slightly warped version of spirituality, perhaps as a result of the namby-pamby pluralism, shaky metaphysics, and do-it-yourself salvation, these films have a way of troubling theologians. I went online and tried to uh, come up with the movies made about heaven that were, you know, most popular. And I found a list, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to throw it out. From, from five being least popular to one being the most popular, movies made about heaven. And, and if I say it, I want you to raise your hand. I want to see if you've seen the movie, okay? And then put your hand down. Number five, heaven can wait. Yeah, okay, you've seen that one. Number four, Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. Wow, just a few. Okay, yeah. Number three, What Dreams May Come. What Dreams May Come. Number two, I think it was a TV movie, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. After the book. And number one, and I don't get this one, Ghost. <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Yeah, okay. I don't, what's that and have to do with heaven? Well, here's a tip for you. Don't get your theology from movies. Don't get your theology from movies. The real truth about heaven is that it's far more amazing than anything Hollywood could ever dream up and put on film. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that 
no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't care how good George Lucas is or Steven Spielberg. No mind can conceive of what God has in store for the true believers who will live eternally in heaven. We can't comprehend all that God has in store for us. Heaven isn't some ethereal place. You know, the far side, Gary Larson, all his, mo- all his things about heaven. Guys are floating around in clouds for all eternity. It's not that way. It's a poor caricature, caricature and a depiction of heaven. We won't float around all day on a cloud playing a harp. It's a very material place filled with beauty and wonder that you and I can't begin to imagine. A great book out there is a book by the name of Randy Alcorn, the author, and it's just entitled Heaven. If you want to read a book that will just excite you beyond anything you can imagine about heaven, read that book, Randy Alcorn, Heaven. Well, here's another thing about heaven that I want us to consider. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and we've not yet been shown what we will be in the future. But we know that when Christ comes again, what is it? We will be like him because we will see him as he really is. You catch that right there? We will be like him. We'll not be the same people in heaven as we are on earth. We're still going to have that human being nature. We don't become gods, as the Mormons teach. And we don't become angels, but we will be like Jesus. Not only will we have glorified bodies in nature, such as Jesus had, and if you go back and study it, it was a body that could materialize through walls. The disciples were locked away, and he just appeared in their midst. A body that could eat. A body that could be touched. He said, touch me, flesh and bone. A body that still had some of the marks of the crucifixion. Not only will we have bodies like him, minus the marks of the crucifixion, obviously. We'll be completely like him in our heart and our character. We will be holy and sinless and pure for the first time in our existence. I don't know about you, but as much as I've grown as a Christian through the years of my life... The person I'll be in heaven is a much, much, and I could go on and add 10 trillion much better person than this one before you today. You know, I'm looking forward to that day when I will be a new person. And who knows, I might even get some hair. Now, I got a feeling God's going to throw in some hair in the deal for me. I know I will for Pastor Talkington. I don't know what shade or what color it would be. But. That's not even in my notes, Pastor Damon. You know, one of my favorite uh, descriptions of heaven is found here in this passage. He, referring to God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You know, what a glorious prospect, friends. 
of being in a place for all eternity where there is no death, no sorrow, no pain, or the crying associated with these things. Think of the untold tears that are shed today on the earth because of things like this. You've all had your share. I've had my share of of pain, sorrow, and heartaches in life. But a day is coming for the followers of Christ where the thieves of our joy and our happiness and our peace will not be able to touch us anymore. In Revelation 7, John says, those in heaven will never hunger or thirst again. And he's not just talking about food and water because we probably won't even need food and water to exist. I believe there will be food because the Bible references uh, the last marriage supper. But John is trying to tell us that every need that we have will be met by God in our eternal home. He will provide for us forever, and there's no word in the human language to describe the abundance of provision, not just getting by, the abundance of provision that he will make available to us for all eternity. You know, one of the ways to make it through the hard realities of everyday life is to remember that this life is not all there is. And that it's not the best that can be. Have you ever heard the phrase, it doesn't get any better than this? Ever heard it? Have you ever used it? Yeah, the golf course, out fishing, bowling, whatever it might be. I don't know, we've heard it. Well, for the Christian, it does get better than this. Whatever this is, is to you. So say it with me. It does get better than this. Some of you are going through some things right now, and you're saying, thank God for that. I'm encouraged by that. And I want to be encouraged by that, and we are to be encouraged by that. And write that on the, the, your heart somewhere, or even write it out on a, on a card, put it in your wall at your purse, tape it to your bathroom mirror. And get out those words at the right time. When life seems to be unraveling at the very seams. When you've just received some news, terrible news, from your doctor. When you're standing at the freshly dug grave of a loved one, a relative. When the pink slip comes on a Friday afternoon. Remind yourself that it does get better than this. God's going to someday take us home. We'll be like Jesus. There will be no more death. Our bodies will be immortal. Every need will be met forever and ever by our Heavenly Father. It does get better than this. Those words come in handy not just in the bad times, but to even remind us in the good times. Pick a day in your life when everything goes perfectly from morning to Tonight, everything, just wonderful. Been the best day possible. And on that day, I want you to remember that it will even get better than this. Paul gives us a suggestion in uh, his letter to the church in Colossae 
that goes unheeded in most Christians today. He says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. William Barclay is a Bible commentator and he says this about this passage. He says, it's easy for a man to be so busy with the things of time that he forgets the things of eternity. To be so preoccupied with the things which are seen that he forgets the things that are unseen. But let's get practical for a moment. How in the world do you set your thoughts on a place you've never seen? A place you're only going to experience when you die. You know, how do I put this truth, Paul, into my daily life? Do I have to go around all day trying to to conjure up and dream up heavenly visions? If you had a vacation destination of a lifetime, Paris, Rio, what we talked about, the Rocky Mountains, and it was planned for next August 2nd, 2012, would you wait until August 1st, 2012 to think about it? Of course not. You would make preparations well in advance to go, and then you would look forward to your trip. And I believe that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in thinking about heaven. We make preparations to go. We do what's necessary to go, and we look forward to that day, not with fear, but with hope and anticipation. So I'm going to give you some meditations, five little meditations that will help you Fill your thoughts on heaven. Number one, my salvation is safe and secure in heaven where nothing can destroy it. It's a meditation of your heart. Number two, when he comes for me, meaning the Lord, I will go home with him. He will carefully, excuse me, in the eternal home that he's carefully and lovingly prepared for me. Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Number three, Nothing can ever separate me from his love. No pain in life, no suffering in life, no tragedy in life, no hardship in life, no demon as we talked about two weeks ago, no horrible mistake on my part, no sin in my life. Nothing can separate me from the love of God if there's confession over that sin and a repentance and a turning to Christ. Number four, I'm to spend my days on earth, however days God has for me, learning two things, to love him and trust him. And finally, a meditation to put heaven on our hearts, in our thoughts. Someday, so very soon in light of eternity, I will join untold millions of other believers at the throne of God And together, we'll worship and serve him for all eternity. Five little meditations to help us think of heaven, not just of earth. Our last question is this. How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? See, that's the most important question of all. And here's a wonderful truth. God has made it easy for you and me to go to heaven 
as our final destination. We believe in grace around here. We don't believe in jumping through hoops and religious things and things that men have attached to the gospel story. Jesus did the hard part when he went to the cross for us. He paid the price for our sins so that we could one day stand forgiven before God in heaven. In the book of John, Jesus said two very profound things about himself that have eternal consequences for every person alive today. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know that verse. John 10, 9, you might not be quite as familiar with it. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. You see, Jesus is not only the way to heaven, he's also the door to heaven. And if you want to go to heaven, and again, that's your choice. If you want to go to heaven as your final destination in the afterlife, according to Jesus and not according to me, not according to the bylaws of our church or the the statement of belief we have, according to Jesus, we've got to go through the door marked Jesus Christ. There's no other entrance. Your passport must be stamped Jesus in order for you to enter into the land of heaven. How much more plain can it be? And let me warn you as lovingly as I can. As a fellow brother in the Lord, as a traveler in this life, as a pastor, whatever you see me as, let me warn you as lovingly as I can. If you try any other way other than Jesus, you won't end up in heaven When you die. Check the book out. Check it out. That's the truth, according to Jesus. Several years ago, the late uh, Dr. James Kennedy, who was the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, he joined with other Christian leaders in a meeting with President Ronald Reagan at the White House. And the story goes that during the meeting... Pastor Kennedy asked the president this question. He said, President Reagan, suppose you were to die and found yourself standing at the door of heaven. And if God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? Before I tell you what the president replied, I hope that you can imagine God asking you that same question. David, why should I let you into my heaven? Every one of you could answer it. As soon as I asked that question, something popped in your mind, your heart, how you would answer it or how you would be unable to answer it. Well, here's what President Reagan answered. He paused, he thought for a moment, then he replied, well, I guess I would have to answer with John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, as followers of Christ, we know President Reagan answered correctly. The word belief here in John 3.16 means more than just having some kind of intellectual agreement that Jesus is God. It means to put our trust and confidence in Him alone, knowing that He alone can save us. Believing is to put Christ in charge of our present plans, our present plan, and our eternal destiny whenever that takes place for us. Believing is both trusting Christ's words as reliable and relying on Jesus Christ for the power to change you from wherever you are right now. You know, if you've never trusted Christ, let this promise of everlasting eternal life be yours and believe on him. I'm going to pray a prayer, and it's a prayer that uh, I've written out. So you're not going to see me close my eyes. I would invite you to close your eyes. If you don't want to, that's quite all right. But it's a prayer that uh, I've been thinking about for two or three weeks now. It's a prayer I want us to close with. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that no one here wants to live one moment longer any doubt about whether heaven will be their final destination. We thank you for sending Jesus to tell us the good news, that you love us, Lord God. Thank you for telling us that if we welcome you into our hearts and lives in this life, that we will be welcome in your home in the afterlife. Lord, I pray that if anyone here is trusting in what they can do to get to heaven on their own merit or their own effort or their own good works, that you will show them the mistake they are making. Help them right now to choose to trust you, to forgive them, and start the process of helping them live for and serve you today and forever. Help us to trust in the way you provided through your son's death and resurrection, in Jesus' name, amen. Look up here for 30 seconds. Two destinations, heaven or hell. There is no other. This is a two-message series. We won't be standing up and giving you a third alternative, heaven or hell. Only you can make that choice. I lovingly ask you, choose wisely, dear friends. God bless you.